Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt. I'm here with Ian Radcliffe, and um, Ian reached out to me earlier a couple weeks ago and mentioned that he's been getting more and more into Western hunting, and since that's kind of the the theme of the podcast, you know, he's from Wisconsin, I'm from Minnesota, but a lot of it's about Midwesterners uh, starting to get out west. I thought it'd be a great episode to have Ian on here and chat with him about what it's like getting into it from, you know, kind of, a, you know, not growing up with Western hunting and what he's thinking about doing in the future. So glad to have you here, Ian. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. It's uh, it's good to be on. Always love talking Western hunting. So Yeah, so you, you are, you're a part of the Project Whitetail team, so big, avid whitetail hunter. Um, do you stick to Wisconsin or do you travel all over the United States whitetail hunting? Um, I've mostly just hunted Wisconsin, but I, I recently just got into um, some public land in Minnesota and um, Illinois, um, but uh, a lot of my buddies go up to North Dakota and, and whatnot, but yeah, it's mostly Wisconsin and Minnesota for me. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, had a buddy that did Wisconsin public uh, once and had a blast. Obviously, there's a ton of publics around me here in Minnesota, um, but I've typically only whitetail hunted North Dakota, Minnesota, when I was a resident of North Dakota, you know. Um, but like yourself, started Western hunting, at, well, after college for me, um, and it's just been like a blast. It's, it's something different about going from tree stand hunting whitetails to just you know, this huge open area and you just go wherever you want to go. Oh, yeah, it's a whole nother ball game. I just, I mean, I love the, you're always, you know, you're always on the move, you're Whereas whitetail hunting, obviously, it's almost always tree stand. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 fun. I'm I'm addicted. Yeah. What? When? When did you start going out west? Like, how many western hunts have you gone on? Um. So it started. Let's see. Three years ago, I went to Colorado and did a private land um, archery elk hunt with my stepdad, and. Uh, we weren't successful, but we had some close encounters, and uh, he actually shot a bear off of a water hole on that trip. So that was a pretty cool experience, but um, that was kind of what kicked things off for me in the Western game. Um, and, you know, I started applying for points and whatnot with all my buddies and uh, just kind of ballooned from there. <laughs> so are the people that you're going out West with the same group of buddies that you, like, whitetail hunt with back home? Or did you have to find a new group? 
yeah, they're all they're all college buddies. Most most from Minnesota. Um, we all went went to Duluth UMD together. So um, we usually have a a group of about six guys that you know go out and we'll go out and hunt in pairs for the most part. But um, there's about usually six of us, um, you know, all from college that go out and hunt together. Okay. Okay, so. You did the the Colorado archery elk with your dad. You've done at least a, a rifle mule deer hunt. How many like season? How many tags have you had in the West so far? So we started mostly with South Dakota um, because before they went to the you know the draw system that they have now, um, it was over the counter antelope, and you could basically apply every year for deer and get you know get deer every year. So we started doing that two years ago, um, and let's see, we we went uh, went did antelope two years in a row in South Dakota, and uh, did mule deer two years in a row. So uh, yeah, it's it mostly started with South Dakota, and then once we got enough points for Montana, I was this year we finally drew Montana and were able to go out there and chase some elk and deer too. Oh, nice. Nice, and it looks like you guys do a little bit of shed hunting in the West as well. A little bit, yeah. We usually try to make make one trip out there. Um, you know, it's it's tough to make a weekend trip going all the way out to Montana or Colorado, so we we generally just go to South Dakota. But uh, yeah. we've had some good success actually in South Dakota. Um, it was weird actually. The one year, um, I think it was two years ago, my buddies. Uh, found a fresh um fresh elk set in like central south dakota where there's not supposed to be any elk um, there. but i mean it was it was weird but i've seen a couple of them in central south dakota i shed hunt really? in south dakota a lot um i haven't found any elk sheds but they're there i mean i there's the place we go there's trail camera pictures of elk sheds and so they're around okay yeah for sure um yeah, Not common. I, I, yeah, low densities. I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was that was pretty cool. But I, I'd definitely like to to go out and do like a you know a three day shed hunt in Colorado, Montana. That'd be that'd be sweet. Yeah, that would be epic. Um, so I'm curious, what's been the biggest difference between just how you hunt when you were getting into South Dakota coming from a I'm assuming like a very heavy tree stand, slattle, you know, stationary whitetail hunting experience where you, you have your spot, you plant it out all year, you trim your lanes, maybe plant your food plots, and you yeah. really are banking on this deer coming to you, and, and that all goes out the window when you go out west. So, like, what was that first couple hunts like for you? I'll tell you what. We did not know what we were doing the first couple of years there. Um, those first couple of hunts were – were tough. It was basically just getting out there to learn. Um, we had quite a few encounters that we probably, you know, should have walked away with a, with an animal, but, um, just didn't, didn't know what we were doing, you know, but, uh, I don't know, just the biggest thing is, you know, going from tree stand hunting, you're, you're always sitting there and, um, you kind of have, if you, if you have a private, you know, farm to hunt like I do, you, you can pattern deer a little bit. Whereas out there, it's like it just kind of seems like uh, you're you're almost um, 
just randomly, you know, looking for a deer. It's, you're not chasing a single deer, right? So um, it's, yeah, the, the whole spot and stock, stock thing was a, a little bit of a learning curve for us, you know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, I think one thing that us whitetail hunters are, uh, have, you know, like the tool in our toolbox or like the skill set is sitting in one spot and glassing which is key to like mule deer hunting yeah. or spot and stock anything really with a rifle is is time behind the glass and a lot of people in the west sometimes don't like that because the whole point of them hunting the west is getting out and exploring the country you know checking what's on the other side of this mountain and just burning boot leather and a lot of times when you just sit in glass and really pick apart a piece of like the landscape, you can start finding things that you didn't see when you just scanned it with your binoculars. And, you know, us whitetail hunters, we're used to sitting in one tree for an entire day, you know, in the rut, especially like sun up to sundown in one tree stand, like not even moving um, a foot. And so that's something that I've found really helps because I could sit in glass all day long. Like it's nice. The yeah. sun's hitting you, you're laying out, you got a spotter, you know, you can lay down lean up against the the mountain so i think that's one thing that definitely helps us when we go out to the west is just especially if you like have good glass yeah and i mean another thing that was real tricky for us when we first started was just knowing where to hunt i mean yeah you can e-scout as much as you want but until you get out there and really see the terrain and what it's like and you know in person um it's, it's tough to know whether it's going to be good or not yeah, that's so that a was, that was tough. That's a good, that's a good question. So, you know, how did you guys go about? I mean, I get South Dakota can be nice, just like geographically, it's closer to Wisconsin, so it makes good sense to go there for like a deer and antelope hunt. But aside from like picking the state, like what what did you go through when you're starting to like figure out like what tag to apply for, what unit, what where you're gonna camp? Like, how did that all that work out for? Well, let's back up one step. Did anybody in your group that you hunt with today, was was any of them going out west before you guys all started, or was it all of you are going out for the first time together? Yeah, there was um, a few guys, two or three guys that had gone out, um, I think probably the previous two years before I started going out okay. to South Dakota for, for uh, mostly, I think it was mostly deer. I think they might have hunt antelope one year too. But so they kind of knew, I guess, the general vicinity of, of where to go, but they were s- still pretty green into things and didn't <laughs> still were learning a lot. So, okay, right. So, so then, you know, so some people had a little bit of experience, but most people are relatively new. So, how does it go through like picking a spot now? Like, what did you think about? Like, did you guys use any tools? Were you using like the Go Hunt Insider service to like break down units and stuff like that? No, actually, um, we we primarily used Onyx for our e scouting, and just just this year, um, we we went ahead and bought uh, the Go Go Hunt Insider. So I haven't dove too deep into it, honestly. Um, but you know, <laughs> when we first started, we just went into each state's you know regulations and draws, and you know, went onto each website and tried to figure it out which is not easy <laughs> oh as, as no. i'm sure you know <laughs> no i so, mean i've been doing it for eight years now and i mean you are gonna love go hunt if you are yeah. used to like going to south dakota's website and finding their like 
lottery results and looking through this PDF to find like units and figure out, you know, where they are on a map and all that stuff, man, you are going to love go hunt. I mean, I use it. I haven't drawn a single tag in the West that I didn't use go hunt to scout, to plan, figure out what the odds were. I mean, it's made a night and day difference in like how our group picks spots. Yeah. We, we started like a Google, a Google sheets spreadsheet to try to track when all the, you know, application deadlines were and when um, all the preference point preference points were due and all that stuff. But um, yeah, it, it gets to be a lot when you're applying for four different states. And with- if you've been listening to the Western Rookie Podcast for a little bit, you know how much I love the Go Hunt Insider Service. You've heard me talk about how I use it on every single hunt I go on in the West. But you might not know, I use it a lot to research different units and states and species I haven't applied for yet, just to get an idea of what's out there, how many points it would take to draw a certain tag, and kind of plan out the future of my Western hunting journey and all the dreams I have for different hunts I'd like to go on. And I've got a really big announcement for you all when it comes to researching tags. Go Hunt just released an update to their mobile app that puts filtering 2.0 into the palm of your hand. Whether you've got a couple minutes of downtime between calls and meetings, or you're just sitting on the couch at night relaxing and watching an episode, it's never been easier to do the research on western hunts and tags. I've been using it all week to plan out this year's antelope hunt in Wyoming, and all I have to do is click the state and species I'm looking for, fill out residency and how many points I have, and then I start filtering it based on what I'm looking for in a unit. For example, success rate, trophy potential, all the things you're used to in the web app is now in your phone. And if you're not an insider yet, go over to GoHunt.com, check it out, all the tools you get with the subscription Plus, the Go Hunt app and the filtering 2.0 in the app now makes it one of the best deals you're going to find when it comes to Western hunting information. Use the code WESTERNROOKIE when you sign up, and they're going to give you $50 of gear shop credit when you become an insider. Four different species in each state. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, I don't know if you've seen recently, but we just started a new series that Go Hunt's actually the the um, title sponsor of the whole podcast, but also this bonus series. And it's, you know, we're going to call it something like, you know, get a tag or the go hunt application strategy. It's a bonus series, but we release an episode like seven days before every deadline. Okay. So that way people like remember. So like, for example, South Dakota, the South Dakota point deadline was four days ago. I'm sure you know, but December 15th, that's your deadline to buy a point for 2023 and use it, you know, in the spring lottery. And so there's so many deadlines. There's, I mean, we built out like a full, between applications and point deadlines, it's like a full 18-episode series in the spring and a couple in the fall with Montana and Wyoming point deadlines. It's crazy. Like, who's going to remember all that? Yeah, definitely. It's <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, I, I've, I've missed a couple points, unfortunately. Just completely forgot to apply, you know. And doesn't it's, that it's just, like, when you realize the week later that you missed it, it, like, wrecks your whole week? It does, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it It was one of those things where I, like, I thought I had applied, and, you know, so I kind of just forgot about it, and then went back a month later and checked my points. I was like, oh, crap, I didn't, I didn't even apply. 
<laughs> so what states are you guys building points in? So you hunt South Dakota quite a bit. I'm sure you got like a favorite spot that you go back to year in and year out when yeah. you have that tag. But what are the other states that you're mixing in? Um, we're mostly mostly doing Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Okay. Um, so those three states besides South Dakota. Mm. Um, I mean, it seems like those are kind of the the top three for uh, – Midwesterners, um, you know, to get opportunities in, in the, you know, near future, I should say. Yeah, I would say those are your core three states that I would recommend anyone building points in if they want to start hunting the West. Um, so they are all like Rocky Mountain states, right? I would kind of count like the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas as like the front range states. I mean, it's the front range mm-hmm. is like the way over in Colorado, but you have like you know, your Mississippi whitetail states. Then you have these, like, transition states where the east side is, like, still, yeah. like, river bottom whitetails, but the west side's usually, like, mule deer and broken country and hills, like South Dakota. Exactly. Those are, like, if you want to apply, great, go for it. Usually the elk hunting. I don't think there's any non-resident elk hunting opportunity in any of those four states. So if you want to do antelope or mule deer, they could be good options. But if you're looking at elk, you got to go to that next tier over, which is Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and then New Mexico. But here's the, the the kicker, you know, New Mexico is random, so you can't plan on it. Yep, exactly. And it's expensive. You got to you got to front that tag price, and a lot of times the they don't have as many apps as you want to go for. Like if you have six people in your group, there might not be a lot of units with six non-resident tags. Right. Yeah. So do they do, do they do group apps or no? They do some group apps. I can't remember. There's certain states and I don't know which ones they are yet. And the New Mexico bonus series hasn't come up yet. So I haven't done a ton of research into this specifically, but some states, if you apply, let's say there's five tags and you apply as a group of six. If you apply, they will give all six of you the tag, but then the tags are gone. So even if you're like the fifth, you know, the fifth number they pull and it's a group of six, They'll give every six, every one of you a tag, and so technically that year they'd issue 10 tags, but then that's done. Other states, if there's five tags and you apply as a six, even if you get drawn on the first the first poll, they'll be like, nope, not enough tags, and they throw you out. So that if wow. you apply for that unit, you're just wasting your whole application. And so that's – I don't know which way it works for New Mexico, but either way, it's you can't plan on it. It's early, so you have to front that $1,200, and then you're returning a tag if you draw twice. Um. Arizona, kind of that same thing, non-resident, not a ton of tags. It takes mid-tier points to get anything that is really exciting to hunt. Um, There's some units where you can draw a few times, but probably not as a group of six. And then, you know, Nevada, Utah, super long for, like, the elk and the deer. Um, And Idaho, you can't do a group app. So you're starting to really whittle away your options. And, and I'm sure if you're looking for like close range options, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, like those are all three day drives for someone in Wisconsin. Yeah. It's, those are all a little too far. Right. Yes. Me. And so that's where I really just recommend if, especially for elk hunting, Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, you're going to get Wyoming every four years or so. Um, you're going to get Montana every every other for now maybe every two two years for now yeah you can't apply as a group of six which sucks 
it's max five. So then you guys are going to have to f roll the dice and go with two groups of three. Um, and then Colorado, you build points, but then when you can't draw Wyoming or Montana, you find an over-the-counter backup option. And that way you're guaranteed to elk hunt every year. Yeah, we've we've talked about Idaho um, a few times, and I know they have, you know, that uh, first come, first serve, you know, draw on December 1st and everything. We just, we just haven't had a year where um, we needed to do it yet, but it's definitely on our radar. If, you know, say we don't draw Montana or Wyoming and we don't want to go to Colorado, that's definitely an option. Well, I don't want to, I don't, I hate first in bubbles, but I really don't think it's an option for you. So first of all, the first come, first serve, 90% of the tags are gone on December 1st. So, you know, you're, you're two months ahead of even any of the apps of any of the other states. You know, Wyoming's is in January, Mon Montana's is in April, Colorado's is in May. So you get, you know, by the time you would have, you have to like hard pick Idaho before you even apply to any of the others. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. Like if you knew you weren't going to draw Montana, but then you'd only have one point with 25%. But then here's the kicker. Drawing. To, you can't they don't allow groups in Idaho so all right. six of you will have to call in we just did this episode so I'm 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 freshly educated on it I did all this research yeah. and so you have to call in at 9 30 a.m somewhere between 9 30 and 10 and you get put in this lobby and everyone's in an equal place all the non-residents are in an equal spot and then at 10 o'clock everyone that's already in the lobby gets assigned a random number so you could yep. be first. You could call in at 9.59 and be first. You could call it in at 9.30 and be 15,000th. And once at 10, whoever's first gets to start picking. And you're just in line like the DMV waiting for your number, right? And so if you call in after 10, you get automatically put to the end of the line. So you're really not getting a tag anyway. And so what happens is all six of you could call in, and like I and you could be 52nd. You're like, great. I'm super good. Like, but you, the unit you want to go to only has 30 non-resident tags. And all five of your partners are like 270th, 1152, 3760. And so by the, you know, by, you might get that tag. And maybe your second guy gets the tag. But three, four, five, and six, they're out. I mean, they're, the tags are all sold out by the time their number comes out. And so you just, it's just not, maybe if you had two people, I think I think if we were to do Idaho, we'd just do like the pairs because we we hunt in pairs anyways. The same two um, all the so time. You, yeah, it's always the same two. Um, I'm always hunting with yeah with my buddy Brucey for the most part. So that yeah, I think can work. That would have to be yeah, that would have to be the case for Idaho. You could <laughs> you could try it. It would the I think the re I've thought through this a lot because we have the same issue. Like it's like man, we don't really feel great about over the counter Colorado, but. Idaho is not good either, yeah. and so we've thought about it, and the, the way I've kind of thought about it is, like, you both get your random number, and you just see, like, how close are you two together, right? And yep. if you're, like, 50 tags apart, when your first guy comes up and it's his turn, you just look at units that are, you know, have ideally at least 50 tags or at least enough where you're like, I think we'll be fine. Like, if there's you know, 25 tags left in your unit and there's only 50 right. between you two, like there's a good chance you, that'll be there. Um, but then you really have to research like all the units because you could 
the ones that are going to have the most tags left are going to be the worst units. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to just be like, oh, this tag's got 300 tags, or this unit's got 300 tags left. Let's get one. And they're like, yeah, there's two elk in this unit, and they're always in the park. Right. So I don't know. It's Idaho, I wish they came out with a way. And you, the easiest way to do it would be all six of your guys have to sign in ahead of time, and you get this, like, group number, right? That would be nice. And then nice. you guys, whoever, your names go in as one. So when you get a random number, you get one random number for your whole group. So it's like, you know, yep. you, group number 50, like your group's number 52, and you have like a 52-1-2-345 and 6. So like you pick your buddy, your next guy, your next guy, your next guy. All six of you pick at the same time. So you know like, oh, now we just need to find units that have six tags. And you might be 3,000th, and then maybe there isn't any units left of six takes. But at least that would give an option for a group app. Yep. Oh, for sure. That would be way nicer. <laughs> yeah. That would, that, would, that would really help. I mean, there's so many things. I like one thing about Idaho is that they don't have a point system. I really do like that because, like, certain units, you mathematically, if you're born today, you'll never hunt. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I just hate that about, about the West. Um but yeah, I think the three states you guys are building points in are, are by far the the three most important. Like you can always choose to add more if you want. South Dakota, North Dakota, um, Kansas, Nebraska, you know, all these other states, Arizona. Um, you can always throw in random apps for, for New Mexico. But I think the three you got are like. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors, creators of the only American-made, fire-insulated, modular gun safe on the market. That means you no longer have to convince three or four of your buddies to help you move your safe. No more blown-out backs or pulled muscles, and no more dings and dents to your home. They recommend having two people to lift and assemble your safe, which would make it incredibly easy because I just put my Recon 32 together by myself, and I had it set up in less than an hour. I carried each panel of my safe into my home with just my two hands, Yet once assembled, it had the same security and ruggedness you would expect from a gun safe. They have designed an integrated door frame, so it is nearly impossible to get into your gun safe without the code, which means your firearms are always 100% secure. Before I had my Steelhead Outdoors safe, I needed to get three buddies to help me move my old safe in and out of my home, and it was always the most stressful part of moving. But not anymore. Plus... Every Steelhead Outdoor Safe is made right here in Minnesota from start to finish, which means you are supporting a local business when you buy a Steelhead Outdoor Safe. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to see all of their size and color options and pick the right one for you. And use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, WESTERNROOKIE, to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoor Safe the three bulletproof ones where at least you're going to get something. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I even looked into Utah um, this fall cause I was, I was working out there on a, on a project. I worked in construction, um, but I was, I was working out there this fall and I looked into the Utah tags and um, you know, there's some over the counter tags, but they're in terrible, terrible units where you're not going to get an opportunity, I guess is what I kind of found. For um, deer or elk? For elk. But yeah. a lot of them were either just spike, you know, spike tags or antlerless and, yeah. But 
Yeah, the spike, there's a lot of spike only over the counters, but those are in some of the best units. And so you're going to be like in a bugle fest and passing nice bulls and probably seeing a lot of elk. You just got to shoot yeah. the spike. But for me, so to put it in perspective, like I would love to like advise people, like don't let that hold you back, like the spike only. Because let's like being realistic, let's say you go to Colorado over the counter or uh, somewhere that you can shoot a spike. A lot of places you can't. Wyoming is one place I think you can. Your first elk hunt, you get a spike that walks out at 20 yards, you're going to shoot it? Oh, yeah, I would. So I mean, that's a lot of people would, right? And so it's like, well, if you would shoot a spike, go do the spike only hunt. You're going to have a great elk hunt. You're going to probably bugle in a couple 300-inch bulls and or the antler list. Like, you know, we've had – I can't – we've had at least five years of eight tags and probably three, four years of four tags in our group. I mean, we're probably pushing 75 tags on elk, archery elk, and we've shot 10, 11 bulls. I think so, you know, the chances are you're not shooting an elk for a few years right. when you're with your bow. I mean, it's only a 10% success rate roughly. So yeah, a lot of people, unfortunately like, Oh, I don't want to do an antlerless only, or I don't want to do a spike hunt, but I'm like, you would have shot that elk on your other unit. So why not, exactly. why not get the easy tag? Like it's there, it's over the counter. You're going to have a great time. You can bank on going, you can get familiar with a unit. Like, I think there's a lot of great opportunity in some of those places. Especially if you're going to be in a bugle fest. I mean, it's that that in itself is, is worth going because, I mean, just learning, like, the elk environment and how they how they behave and how to hunt them is, that's, uh, there's something to say about that in itself. You know, that's yeah. that was really all we wanted out of our Montana hunt this year, um, being our first archery elk hunt. And we... We sure got it. <laughs> Just to hear some bugles? Oh, yeah. yeah. It was an absolute bugle fest. It was awesome. So did you guys, when you, so this was the first elk hunt, right, that you guys went on? Yeah, besides my, besides besides my and private land Colorado yeah. hunt. Um, actually, no, I take that back. Two of the guys went to uh, Colorado last year over the counter, and they hunted seven days, and heard two bugles and didn't see a single elk <laughs> yeah that's rough um yeah we did yep. colorado we had a little bit better luck but not a terrible amount um but yeah i was just curious so obviously with the rifle mule deer it's a glassing game you find them you go get close you shoot them with the archery elk completely different tactics like you oh, don't yeah. really glass in most places you're not really glassing you're looking for fresh uh-huh. sign doing the calling so did you guys have to all learn how to call or or how did that work yeah there was um basically one good caller in each pair um like my buddy and i both learned um, but a few of the other guys um just had one guy in the group that could call but yeah i mean like like you said it was uh we were hunting thick timber so it, it wasn't i mean we probably didn't even need our binoculars to be honest with you um Definitely didn't bring our spotting scopes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I find it hard to hunt really anything without my binoculars. Yeah, I mean, even in the thick timber, there was times where, like, I'd pull them up, you know, as you're getting closer, like, within a couple hundred yards. But Yeah, man, it's just spots where you just can't even see past 10 yards in there. 
yeah, that, I mean, you're not glassing anything there, but, like, yeah, you're like, is that a patch of fur out there? And, you you know, it never is, but (laughs) I don't know. I just, I would feel like I'm naked if I was running around without my bino harness. But my bino harness also has my rangefinder, my scent checker, um, face paint, all my calls, you know, a lighter. I got a lot of stuff in my bino harness, everything, and my tag. So everything I really need to kill an elk legally, it's in my bino harness. So I can drop my pack and still be legal. Exactly. Yeah. So do you carry uh do you carry bear spray in the pistol? Depends on where we're hunting. It, um sure. So when so we've hunted different I'd say different levels of bear of grizzly country. Um you know like Montana, like 3 quarters of the state, they would say like be prepared to have a grizzly encounter. But if we were, you know, hunting around some place where there really isn't grizzly bears, I'd probably carry spray yeah but we've hunted some places that like one place we hunted four people got mauled in the valley we were in the week we were there that is nuts so it's like a big mountain range and four people one of them got mauled pretty much where we shot an elk one of our guys shot a elk like first night a mile up this one certain creek and as we were driving home we looked at a gas station newspaper and it's like Man was mauled by a bear one mile up this creek. And we're like, hey, Ben, isn't that where you shot your bull? And he's like, yeah, pretty much exactly. And we're like, mm, that's not good. <laughs> I, I think I heard that was Montana. I think I heard about this. Yeah, Montana. Um, yeah. A few years back. Yeah. There was, yep. a, there was an issue with a certain flower was, like, in bloom, and it was toxic to cattle. Yep, I heard about yeah, this. is exactly the story. I and I, my brother knows the name of the plant. But it killed, like, an entire herd, and then every grizzly bear within, like, 30 miles showed up to this mountain. And so they closed hunting on the backside of the mountain. And so we were hunting the other side. Um, But we saw two grizzlies that year. One of them was, like, 300 yards from camp. So in that spot, I would carry bear spray on my bino harness, and I carry a 10 mil, the Glock 20, like, a double-stack 10 mil. I carry that usually on a drop-leg holster. So... Either way, if I drop my pack, I still have both. That's the same with me. Yep, I got I had spray in my on my bino harness and my pistol on my hip belt my pack. Yep. Yeah, the only difference I would say is like the hip belt on the pack. Obviously, it's really nice and easy to carry. You don't notice the weight, but for whatever reason, you're eating lunch, you're going to take a leak, you're not wearing your pack, then you don't have half your your system, which. Yep. Some people are aware of, you know, some people are like, I don't care, that's fine. I just chose to put it on a drop leg holster, and I barely noticed it there either, um, especially with, like, a good leather belt, like something that you can, like, really cinch down. And that way you just have it all the time. Yeah, we, so when we first started e-scouting Montana earlier this year, we were, we were kind of looking at a few spots uh, in higher grizzly areas and mm. um that we kind of scouted those areas all all summer long e-scouted should say and uh they got to be about i don't know three weeks or two weeks before our hunt and i don't remember who it was in our group but someone finally brought up like oh you guys realize like this is a pretty high density grizzly area and uh there was actually a part of a national park that got shut down because of a mauling um that week and we 
we kind of completely changed gears and went to a completely different spot uh, with lower density just because it was our our first elk hunt we wanted to we wanted to learn how to hunt elk not worry about grizzlies right yeah it's it's different when you hunt grizzly country i mean the first elk hunt i ever went on was in one of these areas that's like not really grizzly country like there's some but it's not you know the grizzlies are really located outside of the national parks like there's a couple different like ecosystems like the glacier the larger glacier and the larger yellowstone ecosystem those are really the hot spots for grizzlies and so if you're like anywhere in between like there certainly could be a bear but probably it's going to be a black bear and so that year i just had spray and the, but the mistake I made was I watched the Night of the Grizzlies documentary on the Discovery Channel like <laughs> two nights before we went on this elk hunt. And it's about how like five people got mauled in the same night, like just absolutely shredded um, back in like the 60s or 70s because they, they didn't understand how bad these bears could be. And they were feeding them and baiting them and – you know, bait yep. them right behind camp, but then there's somebody tenting like two, like 200 feet away from the bait station, and yeah, and all of a sudden it just boom, like it just for some reason on a certain night it's probably the moon phase or whatever. You know, now like yeah. a whitetail hunter would be like, oh, the moon phase and the pressure, but yeah, like four people got mauled, just obliterated in the same night, and I was watching that, and we were hunting not too far away from where that happened, and <laughs> yeah, I was like freaking out that trip, but. You know, when we're hunting the hot, hot grizzly country, we do adjust how we hunt a little bit. Like, we're not going two hours in before light um, in the dark. You know, usually if we're not on something hot, we're working our way back to the trailhead and trying to hit the trailhead, you know, at dark or at least not too far after. Um, If we're shooting a bull, like, one person's working, one person's watching. Um, At least one person's watching. So if we hunt in groups of three, usually we'll hunt in groups of three then. Um, so that way you can like two people work, one person watches. Um, but yeah, you do, you do hunt a little different and you, and you behave different. Like when you got to take a leak in the middle of the night, you think twice about, do I really have to go or should I just wait till morning? Um, or like we had little campers, not a camper, but like a trailer. We had a cabin and a trailer. So I was sleeping in the trailer and the trailer had this window like this big in the door. And so when I had to take a leak in the middle of the night, I was looking everywhere I could out of that little <laughs> window, you know, with the moonlight trying to figure out. And the problem, the real problem was going number two because the outhouse was like 50 feet through the woods. <laughs> like you had to go through the real yeah. woods. And that was towards where we saw the bear one night 300 yards away. So, yeah, that night you made sure you got your business done and you didn't have to make any midnight runs. It's pretty easy to freak yourself out, too. I mean, I remember the one time I, my buddy went and filled up uh, our, our water bladders, and um, as he's coming back, you know, I could hear him. I didn't know it was him at the time, but I could hear something coming through the woods. I was kind of up on this ridge glassing, and I was, like, you know, yelling and whatnot and didn't hear him yell back, and I was like, oh, shit, this is a freaking grizzly. And I was, you know, just freaked freaked myself out and ended up just being my buddy and he couldn't hear me because he was trudging through the through the woods but yeah it's pretty easy to freak yourself out <laughs> yeah um fortunately we've never had a, like a real up close encounter with a grizzly bear but 
you know, it's a topic, and, you know, we're debating, like, some of our best units in Montana are, are in the hotbeds of grizzly country, and so we're kind of thinking, like, we've tried a couple other units with mixed results, and now we're like, all right, where do we want to go? And, you know, the units we shoot the most elk are the units with the most grizzly bears, and half of our group's like, let's do it, and the other half of our group's like, I don't want to hunt grizzly country anymore. And so we're kind of going through that right now. Yeah, I feel like as if you really are getting into Western hunting, it's bound to happen eventually, right? Like you're and you're hunting grizzly country. You're, it's bound to happen eventually where you have some sort of run in with the with the grizzly. But I think when you're first starting, it's it's definitely I don't know. I I like not being able not not having to worry about that. You know, when you're first starting, just try to learn how to how to hunt elk. You know, before worrying about grizzlies and maybe. Hey friends, if you're listening to this podcast, I know you're an avid hunter just like myself, and we are always looking to get more time in the woods each season. One of the ways that's helped me get more time in the stand is by using Maverick hunting blinds. When I'm comfortable, I stay in the stand longer, and I'm more focused on deer the entire time. I don't turn around so my hood cuts the wind, and I'm not taking shelter from the rain. The best way to stay comfortable is with a hard-sided blind, and my favorite is Maverick's six-panel Booner blind, which allows me to rifle and bow hunt out of the same blind. The best part is Maverick has a blind for every spot. So whether you're looking for a rifle-only spot or a bow and rifle option or even a round blind to cut the wind resistance down, Maverick has you covered. No matter which option you go with, you're going to be comfortable and sit longer in the stand for all of your upcoming seasons. Go to Maverick. When when we get a little more experience and start going deeper into that grizzly country yeah i mean there's um there's levels to western hunting that i think a lot of people you know maybe don't realize right away um and i don't i think it's because the whitetail version of hunting like there's levels to whitetail hunting for sure you know there's a difference between private land with food plots and public land and you know out of state but it's it's typically the same skill set. Like if you're a public land hunter, it's the same skill set you can apply to any state. You know, you, you get a hotel room or you camp, you go out, you hunt, you come home to the camp, you know, and it's rinse and repeat. Climb, you know, you know how to climb a tree or you don't. You know how to use a saddle or you don't. You can hunt from the ground, you know. If you whitetail hunt at all, you can really just kind of apply those same things. Now, now for example, I am terrible at hunting public land because I've had private land my whole life with food plots and architecture and, you know, habitat (laughs) work. And so, you know, I'm good at that, you know, and I'm good at seeing like how to lay out something. I'm really bad at trying to find whitetail sign on public with, you know, you know, big timber publics, but it's the same. Like I can go out and hunt and I'm not like nervous. Right. Or I'm not like kicking myself. Like, what am I doing here? It's like, ah, I just didn't see a deer. It's fine. You know, I've done it many times. I've seen some deer. I haven't seen some deer, but the difference with the West is there are levels and there are skills that you just don't have. Like, can you make a fire without a Bic lighter? That's like, that can make or break not only your hunt, but like a survival situation. Um, can you backpack hunt? Like, do you know how to, to the, like plan out a backpacking trip, the gear you need, the food you need, what kind of stove or cooking system you need? you know, the weather protection, all that. Like, there's so many different levels. And a lot of times, I, like, 
I hear people that they're like, yeah, I'm going to go on my first Western hunt. I'm going to do like a 14-day or by myself solo. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh, my gosh, dude. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to call your baby ugly, but I'll tell you right now, you ain't making it 14 days. You're going to no make way. it three days. And you're going to go back to town and get a hotel or you're going to come home. Like that's, that's what's going to happen. Like I'm not, I'm not doubting your abilities. It, I'm just saying this is what's going to happen. And there's just, there's so many levels. And that's why I always tell people like, it's okay to start early. Like I really like how you guys did it. Start with some antelope hunts. Those are by far the most fun you'll have in the West. Exactly. There's no struggle. There's no grind. There's no the terrain uncomfort. Is a bit easier. The terrain's easier. Like even if you're camping, the camping logistics are easier. Um, the weather's typically fairer. Typically, um, you know, you'd shoot an animal. That's easy. Like anybody can, you know, get take care of an antelope. But you, you like if you jump right into like backcountry backpacking solo elk, all of a sudden, yeah, you might be able to get five miles back. Can you survive there? Probably. But what happens when you shoot a bull by yourself five miles back on your first trip? <laughs> I mean, there's just so many levels. And it's, you know, I think Instagram kind of glamorizes the, the, you know, solo hardcore guy that, that goes and shoots a bull 10 miles back. But that's just not most people. No, I, I would say there's no doubt that, um, you know, doing those South Dakota archery antelope and deer hunts, that, that really helped us this fall on, on our first, um, you know, archery elk hunt in Montana. Yeah, like it's, you know, just to hone in your your spot and stock skills because, I mean, until I went out to South Dakota and started doing those um, antelope and deer hunts, I really didn't know how to spot and stock hunt. I mean, maybe a little bit turkey hunting, you know, back in Wisconsin, but besides that, you, you just don't have that skill set. You know, it's it's a whole different different ball game. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just learning those spot and stock skill sets first before you, you know, get into something. I mean, it's more so just practicing them, right? I mean, everyone kind of gets like, oh, I'm going to be sneaky. Well, (laughs) if you've never done it before, it's hard. Like, it is hard to sneak up on an antelope. Oh, yeah. If if you want to get good at spot and stock hunting, go on an archery antelope hunt and uh, don't hunt out of a blind over a water hole because uh, that is, is, I I think it's some of the hardest spot and stock hunting you can do just because of the terrain they live in. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, it's flat. To work with. Yeah, it's flat. They don't bed down. You can't get good sneaks on them. I mean, antelope or mule deer, yeah, still very hard. By no means is it easy. But at least, like, you can put them to bed. You can sneak. You can make a big loop coming from the backside, downwind, whatever. And uh, But the antelope, man, yeah, that's a tough one. That is really tough. Um, and, yeah, you apply yeah. those to everything. I mean, when you guys are antelope hunting, it's, you're not – like, just surviving on an elk hunt, and I'm not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm capable of doing this. I don't backcountry elk hunt. We day camp. So we pick, a, we pick a main camp, we go out for the day, we come back to that main camp. We've backpacked a day. One, like, this last year we did one night on the mountain, and it was fine. But worst case, I could have got to the truck in an hour. Okay, yeah. We, we did it we, mostly for the vibe. The, just the sense of doing oh, for it because sure. we've talked yep. about it every year like oh we should spike out this year and we've never done it and the guy that always wants to spike out wasn't on this trip he was doing something else and so we all spiked out and said hey we did it but you know i'm not trying to say that i do this like i'm i don't do this and it's because of how hard it can be especially solo to do these like 10 day things that people think they're gonna do i'm like 
That doesn't even sound fun. Like, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I don't want to do that. You could give me some of the best tags, and I'd be like, if you're not going to give me two tags, I don't want it. Because I don't want to do that by myself. It, I'm going to be kicking myself mentally all day long, you know, roller coaster of emotions. Like, it's, it's a grind. And by yourself, it's brutal. Oh, yeah. It was – so we, we spike camped um, in Montana this year. That was the first time I've ever done anything like that. Um, and yeah, like you said, just learning how to, how to survive out there is, is one thing besides the, the hunting. I mean, um, learning your whole, you know, gear set up, how your, how your tent sets up, you know, what, what to bring for, for meals. Um, it's, it's a lot. Um, but I tell you what, that was, that was, that was really fun. I mean, just getting out there because we were able to get pretty far back. I think we we're probably four or five miles back into the spot we we're at, and um, that was really the, the sole reason why we got into so much elk is because we got so far back off the road. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's tough. It's no doubt. So that was you and your buddy that that did the the spike. Just the two of you, not all six. All six of us did it the same week, just in different kind of different areas. And then do you uh, same get, unit, but different areas. Do you share like a base camp? All six people have like one big base camp. So we do for our our other hunts. Um, you know, our archery, mule deer hunts, or antelope. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, for this one, obviously we spike camped it back, and we're living in the back country for. I think it was five days. We packed five days of, of food and and uh, whatnot, and then it started raining on the fifth day, anyways. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was kind of funny because we we actually started like I don't know seven eight miles apart um, at two different trailheads, and on the second to last day, uh, we actually met up with. Uh, the other two guys in our, in our six person group, like they had just hiked oh. really far and gotten really <laughs> far off the trailhead. They were like 10 miles from the truck or something crazy. Wow. Um, Call them they, in in a setup then or something. Yeah. They just kept getting on elk and um, kept moving to, to different spots. And um, they, we ended up running into them like way back in the back country. It was, it was pretty wild, but so I want to ask you, what did your gear setup look like for a five-day spike? Because that's a pretty – I would say that's even a big jump of going from, like, never spiking to doing a five-day at once. Like, that's backpack hunting. I mean, unless you pick the same spike camp every night. But um, that's a big jump. So I'm just curious, like, what, what, what gear system did you guys use? Did you share any of the gear? Um, and how did it work? How did it go? Yeah, it was – we – there was a lot to buy, definitely, and a lot, a lot of stuff to, uh, to add to our uh, Western, you know, hunting gear arsenal for sure. Um, we both had, you know, one person, bivy, uh, bivy tents. You know, you, you use your, your uh, trekking poles to set up and everything. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean. I should, I should just bring up a picture of uh, of my whole setup, but. You know, obviously you got your, your trekking poles. Um, I think we brought four, now we brought five freeze-dried meals and then, you know, five lunches and then um, just like cliff bars for breakfast. 
What were you eating for um, lunch if it food. wasn't a freeze-dried meal? <laughs> it was just a peanut butter tortilla, um, some trail mix, a uh, package of tuna, and there's something else I don't remember. But we just, you know, do a Ziploc bag uh, lunch, you know, and okay. had five different Ziploc bags full of lunches. Um, but, uh, yeah, what else? I mean, um, we, we, what, one thing we didn't bring, um, that we need to definitely think about next time is reindeer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a long commitment I, to trust the weather forecast in the mountains. I yeah. Mean, and lo- we got lucky, but where um, we were in Colorado, it rained every day, every day for really? at least a half hour. I mean, sometimes you just head under a tree and call it good, but one day, it rained for like two and a half hours, and I had a rain fly that I set up, and that was, I mean, that was phenomenal. Me and my buddy that I was hunting with just laid underneath it and took a nap, but we stayed bone dry the entire time. That's awesome, yeah. That's one yeah. thing we got to get. And but, it was lighter yeah, I mean, than rain gear. Yeah, my, my tent, my one-person tent is less than a pound. or it's at, I think it's 17 ounces, one pound, one ounce. But so no pulse. Super light. No poles. It's a bivy. Does it have a basement? Trekking, not a basement. Poles. But does it have a floor? Like, are you sleeping on grass? No, it has a floor. Okay. It's just really, you know, thin, um, you know, nylon or synthetic material. So. And did you have a footprint with it? No footprint. Um, I just, I just use my. I get, you know, get a lightweight sleeping pad and a lightweight sleeping bag. Um, sure. So. Sure. Yeah. So you got the. Um, is and it's waterproof. The tent is waterproof. Well, somewhat. <laughs> okay. I mean, if if it was a downpour, you wouldn't be looking good. Um, okay. Because it's just a, that's why it's so lightweight. It's just a single layer, mm. whereas a lot of them are you know two layers and they have like the rain fly, rain tarp or rain yeah. fly. Yep. Okay. Um, but that's why it was so lightweight. I tried to go as lightweight as possible with all my gear. Um, well, that's that is a. You know, I'm, so I'm guessing the tent's probably the most expensive piece of equipment because when you start getting like one pound tents, that's they get pretty expensive. It wasn't too bad actually. It was you know 250 bucks or something like that. Okay, but that's still like um, a big, a big purchase for a hunt. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd say your bigger purchase items are your boots, which do not. Do not cheap out on boots. Yeah, but you already have those. Like a day hunter versus a spike hunter, he already I, has a good pair of boots, or should. I, I, I did not have a really good pair of, like I had a, I had a pair of Danners and, oh. that I use in South Dakota, and <laughs> yeah. they're, yeah, they're so so right. I mean, what do you I, got now? I had to upgrade Kenetrex. Yeah, yeah. Kenetrex. I had to upgrade. I had to upgrade the boots. Um, the Danners weren't going to do it. <laughs> I wore my Kenetrex. I wear them every day. I never switch out. I never get blisters. My kind of tricks have been the best. So that's the sleep system. Did you just get like a normal backpacking zero degree, 20 degree bag or something like a mummy bag? Yeah. 20 degree mummy. Okay. And how did, so you have the normal, a lightweight air pad probably doesn't have the greatest R rating, um, like a climate or something. Yeah, it was, I don't know what the R rating was, but not, not the greatest and but super, super lightweight. So how did it go? Because so you're in Montana archery season. I mean, we've had everything from 80 to two feet of snow. And so how did it go, like, with your sleeping system? Like, was it comfortable and warm? 
would you have preferred to have a little bit more or a little bit less weight or, you know, how'd that go over? Uh, actually it was, we had pretty good weather when we were there. It didn't get too cold at night. I mean, okay. maybe down the coldest was maybe like mid thirties, I'd say. It, okay. It really didn't get too cold at night. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say if, if you were to go back, say November and do a, a late season hunt and um, backpack like that, um, that's a different story. I definitely want like a zero degree um, sleeping bag. And I just maybe don't think yeah. I would want a backpack in November. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I've elk I don't know. It would November be cool. It's awful. But <laughs> yeah, it would be cool. But um, like for our, our mule deer hunt this year, when we went back, we, we did day hunts only. And we just, um, we actually stay in a, we set up an ice hub. That's what we do. Yeah. So that's, we kind of just drive way back and set up an ice hub and stay out of there for a week. Yeah, the wind would be a little bit of a concern. You definitely want to stake that sucker down and, and probably Yeah, we got heavy duty stakes. Yeah. Yep. But then the ground's froze, so you gotta have like a drill and or a hammer and it's I I hear you. It, it works. Buddy heaters, they go a long ways. Um if I was gonna backpack in that late of the season, I would definitely be doing like a teepee that I can set up a stove with and backpack in one of those lightweight stoves and yep. spend some time yeah, doing some that's, wood. That's what uh we were talking about too, if we ever did do a late season backpack hunt that that'd be the way to do it you know lightweight yeah lightweight stove yeah mule deer country also is you know more forgiving and it can be a little bit than like up in the mountains or elk or but elk are usually coming down about november too so that's okay um so it seems like the sleep system went well um how about like food and water so you obviously you're bringing a water bladder and a water filter for that long of a, a trip um you had the freeze-dried meals. Do you feel like you had enough food where you're running out? And, and what did you use to, like, cook the food? Yeah, I, I think we did pretty good on the food. Um, it was my first time doing that, but my buddies had some experience, so, you know, we got some tips from them. But, um, I mean, we basically just laid it all out, planned each day out, and um, did the same same thing each day for breakfast and lunch, and then, um, dinners we do the freeze-dried meals um and my buddy's got a um what are those little things called again the, like a jet boil jet boil that's okay. the word i was looking for yep he's got a jet boil that he brings along and um yeah makes freeze-dried meals with that and i tell you what it's uh having after like hiking 10 plus miles in the mountains the whole day um you know going up and down a couple thousand feet and elevation having that warm freeze-dried meal is uh that's that's killer that's that's I, you definitely you definitely want those <laughs> well and depending on what your freeze-dried meals you're bringing some of them that's the highest density calories per ounce you'll find um you know peanut butter's right at about 150 um bacon's about 120 cheese is about 120 trail mix is right at about 150 but if you get like like Alpine Ranch is a brand that I like, um, it's a newer brand, but they're up to like 180, 180 calories per ounce because you, you wow. don't carry the water around with you. Everything else has got water. I mean, peanut butter's got a shit ton of water in it. Sure. You know, yeah. so it's it's dense. But if you had like freeze dried peanut butter, like you would be up at like 200, 250 calories per ounce. You'd have to rehydrate it, and it probably wouldn't taste that good. But 
Yeah, that's a big. That's the issue, right? It's weight, weight versus calories that you're you're balancing, and so. So it sounds he carries the jet boil. Then did you carry the the water filter? Because you really only need one of those per team of each of those things. He actually carried both actually, um, just because he had um, that was both of them was hit were his and okay. Um, I don't know. My pack might have been hair lighter. <laughs> so you just use but, like I a mean MSR like. Yeah, it was. Um, heck, was it called? Uh, it was a squeeze bottle, actually. Oh. I don't know if you've seen those before, okay. but yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like one of those that you push. But it was. It was a. It was a squeeze bottle. I I forget the brand of the brand name of it. Okay. Um, I have to look it up. But it's just like yeah, a mini flow. It's like a little good. like a like the pump on a little outboard motor, right? Like your little like duck. Yeah, you, you basically just squeeze that bulb uh, and it pushes water through it. Yeah, it pushes water through the filter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it but, must have taken you a while to filter, like, all the water you needed then. Yeah, to fill up both of our bladders, and we both brought water bottles each day. Um, you know, it's probably three or four uh, liters of water a person. And it, yeah, it took a good 15, 20 minutes sitting at a creek. Yeah. Um, to, okay. To fill, filter and fill up all, everything, you know. Yeah. And one thing that we really messed up on with the water, um, since we're on the water topic, is when we first hiked in there, like literally the first night, um, got all the way back four miles, and we were on elk right away the first night and had an opportunity the first night. Didn't work out. Um, but anyways, we were up on this ridge and decided to just camp on top of the ridge. Um, so that's where we you know, set up our, our camp. And, uh, you know, because it was already set up there we just came back there um every night and that kind of sucked because you're at the end of the day you're going up the mountain instead of coming down so one thing that we learned is like in the future set up camp in the bottoms where there's water um for one thing easy access to water and second thing is that you don't have to come back up the mountain at the end of the day you know you're instead of coming up the mountain you're coming down the mountain to camp yeah and then one thing, and I don't know anything about your setup or where you were, but one thing you want to keep in mind is when you camp high, your thermals drop generally drop downhill all night long, and the elk generally go downhill at night. So you just want to make sure, like, you're not accidentally blowing out the elk because they're going underneath you in the middle of the night, and then they catch your wind and then bail. A lot of people will be like, they try to camp really close to the elk, and then they're like, yeah, every day it got a little worse and a little worse. Um so that's just one yeah, thing never, to keep in mind. I never thought of that. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it sounds like everything went well. Uh, what were you using for a pack to, to carry? Because, that's a, I mean, five days worth of stuff, it starts to add up. I mean. Yeah. I've, I've got an XO, and those okay. things are awesome. Yeah, I, I love that thing. Um, I think it was – I don't know if I ever weighed it, but I'd say it was right around 40, 45 pounds, which, I mean – that's pretty decent for five days um, of food and everything, if you ask me. But yeah, that's not bad. Um, I've had heavier packs for day hunts before, unfortunately, with camera gear and yeah, all that stuff. camera gear definitely adds up. But um, yeah, my tent, my backpacking tent's like five pounds, but it's technically a two-person and it has its own pole system. Um, okay. Other than that, everything else seems pretty similar. Um, 
to what you had because me and my wife are going to start backpacking more. So it's like, well, we might as well just buy a two-person. And it's not the greatest two-person. Like, it's it's a tight two. So, you know, maybe we decide to get a different one. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so you talked a little bit about the water, the lessons you learned there with the water. Um, talked a little bit about, you know, your Danner boots, and then you upgraded that. But just in general for your first, like, big elk hunt, um, backcountry experience, how, like, is what were, like, the – what were, like, your top these worked well and your top – these did not go well. We need a new plan for this coming out of the outcome, like with your experience. As far as like hunting strategy or, or gear? Both maybe. Yeah. Like, okay. Like which gear worked well, which gear didn't work well or, or, or what did you not have? Like, what did you like? Oh shit. You know, we needed this. And then like maybe with your plan, like what did you like about the plan? What would you do different next time about your plan? Sure. I'd say one thing <laughs> we we brought e-bikes thinking that'd be nice to get out to our spots. Um, found out pretty quick that, uh, the trails in Montana are really rocky and not flat. Okay. <laughs> so e-bikes, at least where we were, I'm sure they work in some spots, but e-bikes were not the way to go. Um, but that was one thing. Um, but I guess as far as, uh, as far as like the hunting strategy it's, itself, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things I could go into for that because we learned so much, you know. But um, I think one of the biggest things was we actually spooked a couple nice bulls just walking through the woods, mm. um, walking through the thick timber in the middle of the day. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of tough when, when, you're, when you're doing that type of hunting. Like, you can only see 40, 80 yards ahead of you. And when they're, when they're not talking, it's like, it's pretty easy to spook them, but yeah, um, I, I have heard people like a lot of people say you're supposed to, you know, throw out some cow, cow calls as you're walking through the woods. Um, kind of sound like a you know small herd of elk, which we probably should have done that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and as far as like our actual encounters we had, um, I just I don't think we were aggressive enough, honestly. Um, like the first night we we got into like within 200 yards of this, this bull that we had going off and he was with a group of cows. And, um, we just decided to kind of hang back behind this, this conifer. Um, and if we would have just pushed forward another, you know, hundred yards at, to the next, to the next, uh, you know, group of trees, I think we could have got a shot at him. Um, yeah. I think we were just a little too timid, you know, just cause we didn't really know, what we were doing um and my buddy actually it was funny my buddy thought these elk were like half a mile away or something um and i was telling him like dude i think they're a lot closer than you think and and uh and all of a sudden yeah giant six by six steps out at <laughs> 200 yards and picked us off but yeah um, well I've been telling myself I feel like I've been too timid for eight years in a row. So <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. Every year I'm like, I need to get more aggressive. And, and, you know, I do get more aggressive. And it's just like, yeah, like I think you hear an elk, you go, you make your plan, you don't dilly-dally. So often, you you know, they're gone. You know, you set up, they never come in. You know, you, I think you really got to press, you know. I'd rather yeah. get too close and blow them a couple times. And the, But obviously if you got elk, then, you know, Oh, let's set up and hopefully they come our way and then you go the whole week and you never know what happened. Right. And I think I mean 
what we didn't realize is their their eyesight isn't as good as whitetails, right? I mean, they. I don't know they if it's not see. as good or they're just not as concerned. But you yeah. can get away a little bit with visual. Now, if they pick you out walking through, like, some open ground, that ain't good. But, right. like, drawing, moving, leaning, like, taking one step, you know, moving slow, you know, trying to get a little bit low underneath the brush. You can get away with more, for sure more. You know, their hearing is phenomenal. Their scent is phenomenal. Their sight, I just don't think they rely on it as much. I think that'd be probably the better way yep. to put it. Is like if they smell you, it's over. If they, you know, hear you, it's not good. Um, but if they see you, you know, hearing and seeing, I just, they're big animals, man. Like there's only so much that can hurt them. And I think like visually, it's just one of their like, yeah, there's something over there, whatever. It's in the woods. Like there's things all over the place. Yep, definitely. And I think like the other thing that we messed up on, um, we, the one day we, uh, we were after a bull basically the whole day and finally got in close, um, in the afternoon and, uh, we were calling above him and he was, he was raking like crazy and he just didn't want to come up the, up the, up the mountain to us. Yeah. Um, so we got down onto his level thinking, well, maybe, you know, he'd come in then if we we're on the same level, um, which it actually worked out pretty good. He, he did come in um, eventually, but um, he got to about 40 yards and uh, um, my, my buddy let out like a couple cow calls and right away the bull picked him out um, and just kind of turned around slowly and just went back the other way. So we learned not to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, you can get windowed for sure. Like it's have you heard of the window principle? No, no. Okay, so imagine you're in like your living room, right? And you got some windows around. If you start calling, what that elk's gonna do is he's gonna walk up to your house and he's just gonna poke his nose in that window. Cause that's the first opportunity he's gonna have to see what's making the noise. And if and if and if there's not an elk, when he pops his head in that window in your living room, he's not going to come in through – he's not going to jump through the window, right? He's just going to peek his nose in or, his, you know, he's just going to look. And so when you're in that thick, thick stuff, that window can be 10 feet. I mean, it literally can be as little as 10 feet. But if you're in, like, the sage flats, that window could be 400 yards because he can look over there and be like, there's not an elk over there. I don't know what's sure. making that noise, but it's not an elk, and they will not come any farther. So – a lot of times that's why you want the collar to be, you know, right on that edge of the window. So like as far out as he can just barely see the shooter anymore. So you can still do hand signals and stuff, but sometimes that's 40 yards. And then the window extends, you know, for the shooter, another 40 yards. So basically by that time, that bull sticks his nose in the window and tries to figure out what's making the noise. In other words, the collar, he's walking past the shooter to get there. Right. And so, some I don't know what your situation was, but but yeah, if he can see everything and you try to call and he's like, ah, there's not been an elk here, and now there's something making elk noises, they just it they hang up. It's called getting windowed, in another way to put it. And uh, yeah, it never usually goes well for us either. If they can see you calling, it's you know maybe like last ditch effort, maybe to get them to stop. You know if he's coming in too fast, and you just need them to stop so you can shoot your bow. You can do like a nervous grunt or something, and then you'll stop him in his tracks. 
because he wasn't aware of an elk there, and all of a sudden he heard one, and he just kind of startles. But, yeah, that's that's one thing you want to keep in mind, too. Just And it can depend all on your habitat. You know, how thick is it? We hunt some places where you can see 150 yards in the timber, and so you got your collar's got to be back a ways. So do you guys usually set up with – I guess it, it really depends on, like, what type of terrain you're hunting. But say you're in, like, thick timber like we were in where you can – really only shoot you know 20 to 40 yards mm-hmm. ahead of you um would you would you usually set up a, a collar behind the shooter because what we did is we just kind of went in together on the same um line and my buddy was calling and i was kind of next to him 20 20 yards down the mountain typically we'd always have a collar shooter um now sometimes when things aren't just working and we're just like oh let's just do a cow party we're just going to sit for like an hour and a half and make like sporadic cow calls, maybe eat a sandwich. Then we'll kind of spread out and both kind of be shooters. But, but if there's like a specific bull that's going off and we're within, you know, 200 yards or a hundred yards, we'll have one shooter, one caller, or hopefully, you know, more shooters, but it, try to always have that one caller back. And we try to have the caller back, like as far as you can see as, as the shooter, like if you can see a hundred yards in every direction, the caller has got to be a hundred yards away from you. Because if he's right, if he's ten yards behind you, that bull's gonna come in to ninety, because he can see a hundred, so he can see the collar now, and he's too far away. So you like the collar has to know how far back do I need to be, um, to sure. get this bull to come in. Twenty to forty yards is almost nice because then that collar can stay close and can really guide that bull in. Because that bull's probably gonna come, you know, as soon as I say something, somebody will comment that they had the opposite experience. But typically, that bull's gonna come in. <laughs> You know, on the downwind shade side, so, like, if you have a left to right wind, right, you're out front as the caller or the shooter. I'm behind you, 40 yards behind you as the caller. That bull's probably going to come in 30 yards to the right. You know, he's going to try to catch that scent of the of the caller, and so he's going to probably walk by to the right. So the shooter might want to be up 30 yards and, like, 10 yards to the right to be a little yep. bit on the favor of that downwind side. Now, if that's a cliff... He probably ain't going to come in there. You know, like the ground can always tell, um, can always have an influence. But, yeah, you, you you can play all kinds of games with that then. Because then if the bull's coming in too far downhill, then the collar can go uphill um, and pull him back up to the shooter or vice versa. Sometimes they do come in blind. Like sometimes you get a raghorn that comes in silent from behind. And all of a sudden it's that's where it's nice to have um, eye contact. So all of a sudden you're like, hey, my buddy quit calling. What's up? You turn around, and he's, like, knocked and facing the other direction. You can be like, oh, crap, he might have a bull <laughs> on him. And now you just know, like, oh, now I'm the caller. Yep, exactly. So, yeah. But anything, I mean, people shoot them all the time by themselves. So a lot of a lot of strategies will work. One that we found that does not work is if the bull can see what's making the noise and it doesn't look like an elk, they'll stop coming in. Oh, yeah. We found that out. <laughs> so, yeah. No, there's a lot of ways yeah. you can do it, man. That's the best part about elk hunting. Yeah, my buddy felt bad. Like, he, he thought he, he, he ruined it, and I was like, no. I mean, I was just happy that we got to 40 yards of a, I think it was like a 5x5, five five, you know, and our first archery elk hunt. That was all I could ask for. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll have to get you back on the podcast after your next archery elk hunt and see, uh, get another update. Heck, yeah, yeah. Hoping, uh, hoping we'll get down uh, some more elk next year again. It was, it was a pretty sweet experience this year. 
Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being here and telling your story. Um, uh, obviously, looking forward to hearing all the updates. But give uh, give the listeners a chance to follow along and 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 join you on some of your adventures before we sign off. Yeah, sure. I uh, can follow uh, Project Whitetail. We've got basically everything: Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. It's uh, Project Whitetail official. Awesome. That's that's the username. You'll have to come out with an update, like Project Elk. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny you say that because uh, my that was one of the ideas my my buddy had. Well, maybe we should do Project Antelope and Project Elk. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to manage though too, so that's fine. Awesome. Well, we'll put a link everywhere um, in the show notes to the pages so followers or uh, listeners can click the links and follow along. But thank you for being here, Ian, and thank you for listening, folks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime.